Keywords in Play. You're listening to Keywords in Play, an interview series about game research supported by Critical Distance and the Digital Games Research Association. As a joint venture, Keywords in Play expands Critical Distance's commitment to innovative writing and research about games, while using a conversational style to bring new and diverse scholarship to a wider audience. Welcome back to Keywords in Play. In this episode, I'm talking to Alenda Y. Chang, who is an Associate Professor of Film and Media Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Her research and teaching interests include environmental media, histories and theories of the digital, game studies, science and technology studies, and sound studies. And her articles have appeared in numerous journals, among them Interdisciplinary Studies in Literature and Environment and Feminist Media Histories. And her first book, Playing Nature, Ecology, and Video Games, is what we're talking about on this episode. So I was really interested in just the structure of the book and how much ground it covers. Oh, thanks, Emily. <laughs> yeah, well, it was, it, was, it was really fun to read. And I, I enjoyed how it really approaches, you know, the ecological perspectives on games from a lot of angles. And one of the first examples that you use when you're introducing the idea of looking at games as, you know, ecological is the concept of an ecological text or eco-criticism, which is drawing from literary studies. So... I guess, just to kind of give people a feel of what the book's about, could you describe how you apply this concept to something that, you know, like a video game or like a digital environment is not really straightforwardly textual? Yeah, it's a great question. It actually kind of maps my background, too, because um, I guess people probably don't realize that I kind of cut my teeth on literary studies. So I was really into Shakespeare and uh, (laughs) creative nonfiction. Um, And so I was an English major as well as a bio and film major. And then I did a master's in English and a PhD in rhetoric. So my kind of course was from a very, um, you know, conventional medium of print and and the literary through to film, which I fell in love with and was sort of obsessed with documentary and uh, production and all this other stuff. And then found my way to new media studies, which for me was a natural home because of my hobbies. (laughs) So having sort of grown up with the internet and, um, you know, using really early computing devices and internet services like bulletin board systems, you know, and modems, dial-up modems, um, you know, I had kind of had this course and my first jobs out of college, you know, I didn't go back to school right away. I actually worked in the tech sector for internet startups in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so um, for me, like kind of heading into digital media studies or digital humanities, which it was called for a very long time, still is in some sectors, it just made a lot of sense. And so what happened is I was participating in this graduate working group called Mediating Nature. So that was convened by a student from English and a student from, I think, geography. And what I realized in doing all this reading that was primarily in literary eco-criticism which is where a lot of environmental criticism has developed because there's, you know, hundreds of years of nature writing and <laughs> and sort of like poetry and, and, and fiction and nonfiction about the human relationship to the natural world. What I realized was that, um, boy, there's this really, you know, diverse, rich intellectual tradition within this domain, but that um, none of it was crossing over to 
say, new media studies and specifically game studies, which I was just starting to get interested in and having played games all the while. And, you know, I think I kind of latched onto this weirdness <laughs> and found that there was a nugget there to be explored and that a lot of the rhetoric was um, actually about how the two could not mix. So a lot of environmental theory was about privileging, you know, sort of direct or unmediated access to the natural world, you know, but the irony there is that a lot of it was happening through writing <laughs> and people were smart enough to point that out, like how odd, you know, <laughs> um, that you're writing about this and trying to evoke it. And then video games, on the other hand, are seen as this really artificial and um, in some ways like sacrilegious to, to say that video games could embody natural experience is somewhat heretical, I think, for a lot of environmental educators who really want that unmediated direct access to the outside, right? And so I thought, hey, this sounds like it's going to be a fun fight. <laughs> so uh, let's let's take this on and let's well also let's support these very rich discussions that are happening um, within um, what they would have called first wave literary eco-criticism, where it's primarily about text, over to these new domains. And I think environmental criticism has definitely broadened since then and has started to think a lot about cinema um, and then less so, but increasingly also thinking about interactive media. So that's, that's kind of where we're at. And I'm hoping that my book opens up that direction and people can run with it, disagree with it, do whatever they want with it. But I just would love to have the conversation get started. The examples of the games that you kind of say can be analyzed from like the eco-criticism, the very literary angle, that, that's sort of like ones that are very much about like an experience or set in a specific place. So I think the example I remember is, is like Firewatch and, you know, being, you know, the person watching for wildfires in that very specific area. Later, you also kind of address games that maybe have a more, you know, ambiguous or less deliberate relationship to the environment, or also like ones that kind of present it as a blank slate. So I'm kind of thinking of the simulators or like god games that kind of allow you to like summon environmental disasters or allow you to kind of like set up this very, you know, kind of unrealistic sense of a totally controllable environment. You said that, like, you know, there is kind of a resistance to, like, saying video games can represent nature, you know, because it's kind of, like, worse than going outside, you know, is kind of the argument. But also, yeah, it does kind of have to balance the issue of, like, the expectation that the player is, like, powerful and can affect these things versus caring for the environment or, you know, kind of observing it, which is much more often hands-off. That's another good question. I've wrestled a lot with, you know, questions of realism and representation, you know. But also, like you're saying, with these questions of agency and scale, first, the, the caveat that you know, I think all game scholars have to give is that we don't play all games, first of all. <laughs> we have certain genealogies you know, that we kind of grow up with or are conversant with. So I hesitate to speak for all games and all players. But you know, in my experience anyway, um, in the book, I really tried to kind of have it both ways, which is, uh, which is tough, which is... Um, you know, to both have games where um, you're you're mostly observing and looking like in a walking simulator, which has its own uses, right? Where you're kind of more of a kind of a naturalist gaze or, you know, games where you have very little agency and maybe in fact you feel like that uh, the natural world within the game 
or even the built environment. I don't want to make too harsh a distinction, but <laughs> but that somehow the game's environment or AI um, has more agency than you. And in some ways that could be very humbling. And so I, I like that, but I don't think that has to be everything. And that's why actually the God games and the simulation games, which I used to play, I remember I played Populous. I wasn't a huge Civ person, but I you know did some of the other Sims. And those games, even though like you, you can certainly level the critique of like, um, you know, like a Haraway's God trick and like the sort of um, aerial surveillance view and sort of society of control, that kind of stuff. I think that's there, but at the same time, it's, you know, I tried to say that that perspective can be really illuminating when paired with other perspectives because it is largely a planning perspective. <laughs> it is a, a kind of a larger systemic perspective. And in some ways for you know wicked problems like climate change and other things, we kind of need the gamut of you know direct experience, kind of like lived experience, as well as the larger uh, regional planetary views, right? In some ways, I think, <laughs> I think, you know, people like Ursula Heise have said like, there's a real failure to think big, which has kind of been a cost of espousing the local and really thinking like about the local and that we really also need the global scale. And so, you know, those games, they're not perfect, but they they um, allow sort of a different level of interaction, which I think is, is useful, even if it's instructive in negative ways, <laughs> like with Spore and how you can basically fix climate with technological doodads and, and wizardry, which I don't, I'm not a huge fan of, but it still, you know, provokes you to think about things like that. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of both. <laughs> I try, you know, I think that every kind of game, even games where you're doing a lot of environmental destruction, sort of have interesting consequences or, or things to, to think with. And I guess in addition to that, the book kind of goes on, you know, kind of presenting all these different ways of, you know, looking at ecological issues in games and, you know, positive and negative, like you said, it can kind of be, you know, a really useful tool for thinking through these problems, or it can be, you know, kind of teach you exactly the wrong thing, which is, you know, oh, there'll just be some magical gadget, you know, that just lets us reset the environment and it'll be fine, right? Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think I think relating to that, you also kind of bring in the ecological perspectives of games and how a lot of them are kind of, you know, built upon, you know, you go to the place, you extract the resources, and, you know, they just kind of become, you know, these discrete little objects that you could move around. You relate that interestingly, for one thing, to like the trees that are developed and sold by um, like resource uh, companies to games. That's something that was really interesting to me, and I think I don't have enough of a, like an ecological background to fully appreciate like what's interesting about three D like representations of trees. So, could you go like a little bit more into how you see like ecological perspectives? expressed through like the 3D trees that appear in a game. <laughs> I love that you're um, focusing in on the speed tree stuff because I have a I have a separate essay about them in Electronic Book Review, which I love and um, where I got to do this deep dive into plant philosophy and sort of like algorithmic botany and all these kinds of questions of how digital asset models get created and specifically vegetation, right? And I think that might be where I'm heading for the next project, actually. <laughs> I think what I was trying to get at there was um, 
Well, a few things. I think as a media scholar, I'm really interested in kind of the increasingly stock nature of our visual landscapes that surround us in the form of computer-generated images. Not just in games, because Speechtree, even though one of its primary branches, the one it started with, was for games, they also sell to filmmakers and television producers and architectural visualizers, you know, so I think you know, chances are if you've seen like a computer generated tree or piece of vegetation in a TV show, film or blockbuster game, it's it's from this company, right? There are there are competitors, but it's definitely the, the main one. But of course, you know, even though they have, you know, I'm sure, you know, hundreds of employees industriously working away to create these assets and to build their libraries and that, you know, people can tweak them and sort of hand model them to an extent. At the same time, that's inevitably of a generic character, which I find really interesting. It led me to ask all these questions about sort of what assumptions get baked into those things. And um, even just very quick analysis of things like the Unity asset marketplace, where developers go to shop for pre-made assets if they don't want to lavish, you know, money or time on developing their own. It just, you know, looking at that shows me, you know, it's very curious to see, well, A, like how many gun models are there <laughs> compared to like animal models, right? And it turns out like there are way more like deciduous trees, like North American temperate forest trees, the kind that you would expect living in the United States or, or Europe. There are way more of those than like subtropical broadleaf trees, right? And in some ways the algorithms that these modelers use are better at modeling the branching kinds of trees than the trees that take other forms. And so there's a, there's a lot kind of going on here. There's sort of the computer science, the graphical side of things, the botanical side of things, the corporate model <laughs> of, of stock imagery. And that's why I, you know, I reference um, Getty and Corbis and, and those kinds of like libraries of images of, you know, like women eating salad and you know just like the the trick to stock photography is for it to be just anodyne enough that like it can be ported into all these different materials without feeling abrasive so like they, it's a deliberately cultivated abstractness <laughs> mm. if that's what we're also getting when we wander a world like oblivion or you know skyrim or something like that what does that I, I'm just kind of curious about like, what does that mean experientially for me as a player, but also compounded over years, what does that mean for sort of my expectations of not only other virtual worlds, but also like the world that we actually exist in, <laughs> yeah. right? Am I gonna have that bizarre moment where I wander if I go to a national forest or something and I'll say, hey, wow, I didn't really think giant sequoias look like that. <laughs> you know, so I'm just curious about this, about the sort of imaginary that's getting developed by these tools and their ubiquitous adoption that's kind of happening without our consciousness. Mm, yeah, I think that that is like an interesting point about as video games become like larger budget, like more kind of elaborate, you know, productions their supply chains start to have a lot in common with, you know, like blockbuster films that kind of need, you know, especially now, they kind of need like all these 3D models to like fill in the stuff that they can't actually do, including trees now, um, which, you know, that is... I think it's a huge, it's a huge issue for the industry. And that's why some of the big players like EA are pursuing um, like cloud-based solutions where they can leverage 
you know, worldwide networks of computers <laughs> and machine learning and, and all this stuff because asset creation has become exponentially harder mm. as these worlds, like you're saying, have grown more and more graphically real, realistic and complex, right? It's interesting. It's, it's, it's really, I'm really fascinated to see what we're hurtling toward right now. <laughs> yeah. For some, it's VR. For others, you know, it's a, a low carbon future where we're just not on our devices as much. Yeah, I guess that, that does kind of relate to um, the second to last chapter of the book. That was probably my favorite. I really liked um, the chapter on entropy. Um, cause... <laughs> You're into the darkness. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought, I thought it, was, it was really cool in how it like, bridge to the idea of energy use and e-waste and kind of all these issues that are tied up in terms of like you know how how the video game industry has basically like started as a consumer technology and just like taken off and grown massively and you relate it like metaphorically well i guess metaphorically and a bit literally as well to how these games represent things like farming as like you know this process that like has no waste you know it can just be done indefinitely there's no like long-term consequences <laughs> to just kind of you know finding like the thing that grows the fastest on your harvest moon farm and just like harvesting as much of it as possible and th in many ways that's kind of the way that you're encouraged to play the game yes yeah it would be really interesting to kind of hear about like how you made that relation and how you explore those issues as intertwined in that part. Yeah, I think um, oftentimes when I give talks, I, I try to tell people that the book actually kind of like fought with my editor about like a tiny little word in the title, which was after the colon, it's ecology in video games, right? But that's because my editor said, just do that. But I really wanted it to be the ecology of video games. <laughs> and, and I know that seems so minor, but um, for me, you know, it's, it is important, I think, to have the sort of content analysis of, you know, like what kind of representations and, and mechanics or processes are being represented in the game. The book is largely about that, but I think it's also important to look at, like you're saying, the supply chain and the production context and not even just that sort of materiality, but also the ways that games are just part of these wider assemblages um, of, you know, the player context, the sort of environmental context, the labor context, or all these other contexts that kind of intersect. So that's that's a story of, you know, publication kind of <laughs> forcing you to be one thing. But um, that chapter grew out of this, this piece I had written about farm games where for um, a period I was obsessed with them. And I think I played... It's almost embarrassing to admit, but I think I probably played like 70 or 80 of those games. And they're all pretty much, they're all pretty much the same, right? There are like some minor differences. Sometimes it's magic and sometimes it's, <laughs> it's science. And others have these narratives about fighting global agribusiness. And it's always about the valorization of like a family farm. And it's, it's almost always a, a female heroine. And we can, you know, have the conversation about casual games and, the sort of presumed market for those. Um, but, you know, for me, it was just really, it was around the time that Farmville was really popular and those Zynga games that were supposed to be social, but were really kind of anti-social. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there was some, and you know, there were some Chinese games and uh, Japanese games and others that were really also even more popular. So I was really interested in it because the, the, the ways, there are just these really direct similarities I think you were hinting at between the ways that global agribusiness treats nature or, you know, animals and plants and um, 
soil and all those other things in the same ways that sort of computers also treat game assets or game objects, right? It's this kind of monocultural thinking, <laughs> right? And there's, and there's really not necessarily a good reason it has to be like that because there are all these other kind of forms of much more healthy farming, like three sisters farming that's pursued by indigenous communities around the world where nutrients get replaced by, you know, these, this kind of symbiotic interaction of different species. It kind of made me tear my hair out a little bit to play Farmville and then, you know, harvest my pigs for bacon and they were unharmed afterward. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I like to, you know, when I'm, when I teach these or something, I will, I like to put those kinds of games next to like the PETA, the people for the ethical treatment of animals, the kind of activist parody games that they make because they try to do the exact opposite where they really highlight for them, you know, the cruelty and the kind of inhumane conditions around eating animals or something like that. So it's just fun to kind of like put those together. Like they have PETA's Cooking Mama, which is Mama Kills Animals, where... (laughs) Yeah, they upend the Nintendo aesthetic by making it really gory and squelchy and, you know, when you're preparing recipes. And the same thing has happened in cooking shows, right? It used to be that Julia Child would actually like eviscerate a chicken and like, you know, debone it. And, you know, now it's like, oh, I've got these these like pre-wrapped chicken breasts that magically came out of the fridge and has been placed there by my production assistant, (laughs) you know, that sort of stuff. So, you know, there are all these trends that I, I think actually are traceable across media, which is fun. And then the farm games itself grew into this larger consideration of, you know, do games adequately model things like, um, waste, you know, waste and human and natural labor and um, kind of just like the unsightly, unpalatable aspects of existence that are nevertheless still there. And, (laughs) you know, that could be everything from the sort of, um, you know, child labor and resource extraction of minerals that cause, uh, you know, resource conflicts in other parts of the world so that we can have our PlayStations, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, All the way to all these mechanics that as players we just take for granted right like the fact that we can stick a million things in our backpacks (laughs) (laughs) i just these little things are like infinite supplies right like if you play an mmo or a lot of games they're essentially infinite resources um not all obviously but all of these little sort of um things that sort of are there for player convenience and enjoyment uh you know, it just, you start to question it after a while. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is, this is kind of a bit of a throwback, but I, I always think about, like, how one of the activities that you had to do so much of in RuneScape was just, like, cutting down trees for no reason to increase, like, your, <laughs> your chopping skill or whatever. Oh my goodness. And I just, I just remember, like, you, you would just kind of stand at the same tree and just, like, chop it down, like, a hundred times, and that would be... <laughs> you know, your, your activity for the day. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, it is really, you know, kind of strange in that I definitely feel like, you know, there is this kind of thing that people like have been especially talking about recently with like the way that electronics are like less repairable and they're kind of more mysterious about like what goes into them and what you do with them, like after they break. 
that is kind of like the same mystery in in terms of like why are these items infinite and like why can i just like do this action over and over and over in a game <laughs> and you know there's no waste product there's no pollution anything like that happening yeah i mean i uh i think my work since playing nature came out has been a sort of turning a little bit more not quite quantitative side of things but like trying to work more with industry and with journalists and others to think about these kind of broader implications of the game industry. And I'm not an engineer or anything like that. I'm not um, somebody who's an expert on calculating carbon footprints or anything, but there's a lot of great work that's being done about this, um, like Benjamin Abraham's work. And I've been working with the IGDA, the International Game Developers Association. They have a climate special interest group, which has been um, active and just trying to get going and in, in terms of like how do we as an industry kind of confront the issue of climate <laughs> whether that's through game content and certain kinds of design patterns or you know establishing councils at every major game company or like a sustainability officer which exists in some places so yeah I mean I find myself in this interesting position of being somebody who's really a scholar and somebody who writes and thinks <laughs> to being somebody who now has to sort of um, talk about these things with, with press and with actual uh, workers in the game industry and, and um, you know, trying to create uh, ways to, to change for the better. <laughs> like I just finished a, I actually just submitted this uh, chapter about cloud gaming that I was writing with a co-author, Jeff Watson, who unfortunately passed away we were very much interested in looking at this, um, the future of gaming, if you believe Google Stadia, whether or not that was actually um, like a, a better option for gamers in terms of sustainability and, and all these other things like energy consumption and device ownership. And, right, because if you listen to them, it sounds like it's perfect because you don't have boxes and you just, you know, you don't need to buy a specialized device. And... Yeah, but it's always just sitting somewhere else, right? Right, exactly. It's somebody else's box in a big warehouse of boxes. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think that is such a complicated question because there is like so many like moving parts to it. It's like, okay, well, you know, we don't have to ship an individual console to everyone. But at the same time, the amount of data that's used to like kind of keep these things live all the time you know, that might be more power than someone just running it locally. So yeah, it's, it seems... Yeah, it, it turns out that it depends on all those things. So there's no straight answer of like, what is the best, most sustainable way to game? Because it, it literally depends on the game you're playing, like what its file size is. It depends on how long you're playing it. It depends on when you're playing it, where you're playing it. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's so many factors. It's also what device are you playing it on? And so, you know, and it's so murky. Uh, you know, one thing I've noticed is that a lot of the attempts to monitor e-waste totally left out game devices just because it's such a massive problem that they were too busy tracking like personal computers from schools or something like that. Or they, they just had to leave out all this other stuff. And when they did start to track it, they realized, wow, those companies are actually doing a really terrible job. Right. Fortunately, there are some groups that are now doing this kind of research and so they can find out that, you know, like gaming in California, where I live, takes as much energy as like 10 million full-sized refrigerators every year, right? People are starting to do this and you can start to wrap your head around the scale. Well, that was 
super interesting and thank you for talking with us about your book is there like any online or social media place that people can find you or any upcoming publications to shout out well, you know, I kind of, I am on Twitter very sporadically. I'm the worst social media, like, content creator, but I am on Twitter as Game Grower, in just one word. And I, like I said, I think I've got um, a couple pieces coming out, one on cloud gaming, and I think there's a upcoming conference on eco games that's happening in the fall. So there will be a publication, an edited collection coming out about eco games sometime next year, I think. All right. Well, that's really interesting, and I'm sure people will want to keep an eye out for that. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thanks, Emily. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this episode of Keywords in Play. For more great ideas around games, check out criticaldistance.com or take a dive into the Digger archives at 